Our reading today is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And you'll be able to find that on page 1116 of your Sanctuary Bible. 1116. A few words of introduction uh, before we go to our reading. Again, this is the uh, Sunday where we commemorate the baptism of Jesus himself. And uh, as Sharon read from Matthew chapter 3, Jesus went into the Jordan, took up that question with John as, why should Jesus be baptized? John was giving a baptism of repentance. Jesus didn't have anything to repent of. But Jesus did it to fulfill all righteousness. And what that means is that he was going to identify with human kind in such a way that he was even going to go through the baptism that they went through. And that baptism of Jesus was really pointing forward to the end of the gospel, where he is crucified and he goes under the ground in his burial and comes up again at the resurrection to new life. It's a, it's a sort of a foreshadowing of it. Since this is about the baptism pardon me, the baptism of Jesus, it seemed like a good Sunday to take at least one view on what does baptism mean? What what do we think of when we say baptism? What does the church do when it baptizes people? Now, in the Christian world, there's a lot of opinions on what baptism means. In this room, there's probably about 20 different views of what baptism means. This is an area where Christians in general have had a very hard time agreeing with each other. What does it mean? How do we do it? Do we sprinkle a little bit of water on somebody's head and call that a baptism? Or do you have to be plunged all the way under? Uh, early on in the, in the early church, you weren't really baptized unless you were baptized completely naked. I mean, we don't do that anymore, and that's probably a good thing. Avoid some awkwardness in the church, but that's how they did it. Um, so what does it mean? How do we do it? The, the means, the mode of baptism. Um, and what I think we'll do today is the covenant thing, is we're going to look at Scripture, and at least just one Scripture, and explore a little bit about what this particular Scripture thinks baptism means, is Romans chapter 6. And one thing you should know about the covenant church is that um, the covenant church has decided in its founding back in 1884, that it was going to be a church that didn't argue about what baptism means. That's kind of part of the DNA of who we are as the covenant church. We decided that our life in Christ together is more important than our disagreements on baptism. And so, as a pastor in the covenant church, I actually had to sign an oath or a pledge. It's hard to say if it's an oath or a pledge. Those those two words have similar meaning, but one's a lot stronger. I had to sign a pledge that I would agree to baptize either an infant that somebody brought to me or an adult who came and professed their own faith, and I would have to freely do each one of those and not impose my own personal theological view on any family that would come to me and ask for baptism in either way. And that's, so you should know that about all the covenant clergy. They've had to take this oath. It's kind of this way we've memorialized this understanding of who we are is that we really don't fight about this. We agree to disagree, and our life together in Christ is more important than the question. And again, what we always do in the covenant church is we come back to the question of the scriptures. What do the scriptures have to say about baptism? And so 
Romans 6 seemed like a good place to at least talk about that a little bit because in Romans 6 we find that baptism is deeply and almost mystically tied up in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it has meaning in that, among other places in the Bible where we find that it has meaning. Just to introduce Romans 6 then, I want to talk a little bit about Romans 1 through 5. And if you read Romans, you'll find that Paul spends a lot of time, the first chapter and two and a half chapters actually, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 20, really pounding on the intensity of sin. Sin is a real problem in the world. But then, in Romans 3.21, all the way through the end of chapter 4, he talks about God's faithfulness to redeem us from our sin and to justify us, which really means to make us right in his eyes, to, to settle the score, to kind of empty our tab out, to make us people who are acceptable in God's sight. And then in chapter 5, he goes into the discussion kind of about how God does this. Um, But this is how he concludes chapter 5, and it leads into a really important question that gets asked at the beginning of chapter 6. And the question at the end of chapter 5, or the the statement that Paul makes at the end of chapter 5 is this, is that wherever sin increased, grace abounded all the more which is great news. Whatever sin we bring to the table with God, no matter how big it is, God's grace is even bigger than that sin. It's plenty enough to cover it over. So that's the backdrop. And think about that as I read Romans chapter 6, particularly the first verse of Romans chapter 6. Let's read Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life 
and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So you caught the famous question at the beginning of this chapter. The end of chapter 5 was, well, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And Paul is anticipating the question that his readers are now going to ask. Well, if sinning more creates more grace, then, hey, let's sin all the more so that grace will increase all the more. It sounds like a good deal, you know. Uh, I'm a sinner, and God redeems sin. It's a great relationship. Let's, let's just keep it going like that, you know. It's perfect. Um, and Paul is, says, and then he, qu- he quickly answers his own question. It's a rhetorical question. By no means. It's a very strong negative in the language there. Absolutely not. You're missing something really important. This question isn't just a natural outgrowth of the end of chapter 5, but it really is the basic human question about sin. It, It describes the basic human problem that we come to when we realize that our sins are forgiven. It points deeply at human nature to ask a question like that. If grace covers sin, maybe we should sin more. Maybe we should stay in sin or go on sinning. Now, our NIV translation is a little bit challenged here because it reads like this, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? But you may have another translation. Other translations put it more as an idea of continuing in sin to stay in a place where sin is. And in fact, if you read the next verse, um, he says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? In the Greek here, and the Greek word is epimenomen, is this idea of to remain in a place. It's similar to the word that Jesus uses when he says, abide in me or remain in me and I will remain in you. Can we abide in sin? Can we remain in sin? And in this sense here, sin, which is always in action, it's, an all, it's always a disobedience, it's always a thing that we do. But the way Paul is constructing it here is that sin is also kind of like a place where you are. It's a state of being. It's like a foreign country that you really need to get out of. It's a a place. Now, does this make sense to us? Actually, um, I have met some people who really do associate certain places with sin. They know they need to avoid those places because when they're in those places, they're more likely to do something that they'll regret. That makes sense. Now, that's not really what Paul's talking about here, but it kind of gets at that idea that sin can be a bit of a location. Sin can even be a time. I actually knew a man, and and there was a certain afternoon on Thursdays, he said, where he felt strangely that he was at risk of sinning. Sin, Sin occupied a place in time for that man, too. One of the big images that we get 
from the Old Testament. Probably the most important image that we get from the Old Testament is repeated over and over again. Is this idea that God's people were taken out of one country where they were slaves, an old place, and they were transported to a new country, a new land, the promised land. And that they changed their country, they changed their location, they went from one place to another. And as I mentioned to the children, they got up to the point where they, they were going to cross from one land into another and God was protecting their rear with this pillar and he opened up the waters and they went in and under and the waters were on either side of them and they went up again to the other side and they began a new life with God and a new covenant in that new place. And the waters closed after them and destroyed death, destroyed the thing that was coming after them. So geographically, they were in a new land, but spiritually, they were in a new land too. They were out of slavery to Pharaoh and to Egypt, and they were now in a covenant relationship with God. A big change. They were in a new land. They were in a new place. When Paul looks at this question, shall we remain in sin so that grace may increase? He says you can't. You can't stay in the old country of sin. You can't stay there. Because God has brought you, almost like the people out of Egypt, has brought you down and, up and, down and under and up again into a new place. And you can't be in two countries at once. You can't do it. Now, he's, Paul's telling the people, and this is where baptism comes in, you didn't have the Red Sea the readers of Romans. You didn't have the Red Sea like the people of God had back then, but you had your baptism. Your baptism functioned in that way. Your baptism was the way that God took you from the old country and put you into a new country. And when you're in the new country, you can't live in the old country. When you're in the new country, you have to start adapting to what, the things in the new country. Not only that, it's not just that your baptism was the way that God did that. Your baptism was so tied up in what Christ did because it was Christ who enabled you to move from one country to the next. And so we think of Jesus' baptism as something that he did out of solidarity with human beings to fulfill righteousness so that when he went to the cross, it would make sense for us all. Ah, he's doing this for us. He's going under. He's being buried. He's rising again to new life. And that's what Paul says then in verse 5. We have been united with him like this in his death. We've been buried with him. We've been united with him. And then we'll be united with him in our resurrection and in his resurrection. That word to be united is, literally means to grow together. And the idea is kind of an organic one of almost of two trees that have been planted side by side that begin to intertwine their trunks together so that you can never really pull them apart. They're almost like one organism, yet they're two. So the good news is that you have been united with the death of Jesus Christ by your baptism. You have 
experienced what Christ has. Your old self has died. It's been buried. It's gone. And when you're dead, you, you, you can't be convicted of any sins anymore. In fact, when you die, you, that's really the only time in your life when you stop sinning. I mean, if you're looking for the day when you're going to stop sinning, I, I can tell you when it is without fail. It's the day you die. Up until then, you are going to keep sinning, you know. Um, but when you're dead, you can't sin anymore. When you cross over, you can't live in the old country anymore. When you're baptized, you have been put into a new country. Now, we realize, hopefully some of you are saying, well, but even after I was baptized, I kept sinning, right? It's true. It's true. You're always going to have this fight. But your baptism is really you saying, I belong in this new country. I'm going to plant my flag in this new country. I'm going to swear allegiance to this new country. I'm going to leave the old country and the old language and the old customs behind. I I may come back to them from time to time, but this is where my allegiance lies. It's on this side of the Red Sea. So, this then gets into the problem that even the people of God had. God brought them through the Red Sea. God put them in the wilderness. It was all really going to go pretty well. But then the people started grumbling. Do you remember this? They said things like, oh, it was so nice back in Egypt. Now, what were they thinking? They were, they, their slavery was intensifying. It was getting harder and harder and harder for them to be slaves in Egypt. They were giving them fewer resources to make the bricks that they needed to build all these pyramids and public works in Egypt. The design of their labor in Egypt was genocide. It was designed to eradicate them completely. Now, who looks back at genocide and says, oh, it was so nice back then. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. But yet they said it. God gave us freedom. God freed us from slavery. God took us out of the clutches of our old master who was trying to destroy us. But yet, there's something about that that I miss. This is that fundamental question. Should we continue living in sin so that grace may increase? No. We do this too. This is maybe an illustration that some of you are familiar with from the the realm of substance abuse. Did you know that If somebody grows up in a family and say perhaps their father was an alcoholic, a raging alcoholic, and the whole family's life sort of revolves around finding equilibrium with this person's substance abuse and the anger and the mistakes and and just the, the whole problem that comes with that, something interesting happens. If that father at some point starts going to AA, gets help, goes through treatment and recovery and stops drinking and starts making amends and starts making healthy choices with their life? Do you think their family is happy that that person did that? Hopefully. 
One thing that often happens when that one person gets healthy is the whole rest of the family starts to fall apart because they were so used to that old way. They were like, ah, I knew where I stood when you were the problem in the family. Then everybody else looked good. All our relationships with each other were based on you having this problem. Now that you fixed it, I have to start looking at my own problems, and I really don't want to look, do that. It is not uncommon, I'm not kidding, for people in that situation to say, I kind of wish my dad would start drinking again. It sure <laughs> We knew where everything was then. We knew what everybody's role was. That happens a lot. That just gives you a little glimpse of how we are as humans. We ask that question. Can't we go back? Can't we reconnect with that old thing? Because at least we knew what it was like. We understood it. Change is hard. Churches are like this too. Churches have this problem. Sometimes if a church changes, and we hope churches change and become healthier places, churches can say, oh, we kind of liked it before when it was dysfunctional. Because then we knew who all the problem people were. We didn't have to look at ourselves. We don't like the change. We don't like the new things that are coming. We wish we could go back to Egypt and eat the onions and the melons. We wish we could remain in sin so that grace would abound. I wish we could go back to Egypt. But you can't. You can't go back to Egypt. You can't live in two countries at once. You know, the biggest problem with God showering us with grace is that it baptizes us into a new place. And when we're in a new place, we have a new land, a new language, new customs, new practices. And we have to say goodbye to the old. We have to put our flag in a new place. And that's hard. In general, what we find is that something has to die for the new to come about. The good news is that what dies in baptism is us. In our baptism, we put to death the old self and open ourselves up to the new life that we have. Should we stay in the old country that we were in before baptism? No. By no means. It's impossible. What I like to think of is as bad as it is that I'm always wanting the old life. And I, I'll be honest with you. I like Egypt. I do. I like Egypt. And I'm drawn to it. The other side of that, though, is there is a vast and unexplored and amazing country ahead of me over here with God. It's staggering what God wants to do with a life that has been transported from the old to the new. That's something to look forward to. That's something to live for. At the end of the service today, uh, some of the deacons are going to come forward and stand right here. And I'd like to invite you to come forward for prayer at that time. And it could be for anything, literally anything. It could be just to receive a prayer and a blessing for anything that's going on in your life, be it a prayer or a praise. But specifically, if you want to come forward because you want to repent that you want to go back to Egypt, 
If you want to repent that you're stuck on your old life, come forward and the deacons will pray with you. Or if you want to pray to receive a blessing, to explore a new country that Jesus has opened up for you by his death, burial, and resurrection, then come up and receive that blessing too and receive the celebration of God in that thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who went under the water, both the real water and under the earth, and sprung forth to new life. Help us live into that, old, to that new life and to forsake the old. We ask it in his name. Amen.